0: you are listening to the sun grove podcast for more information please visit our website at sungrove.org how many of you uh when upheaval happens uh you're just a level-headed person you might come across a car accident and you're just level-headed and and you're just calm When, when there's crisis you're calm and in control. how many of you that that's you you're just you know you respond well how many of you flip out come on be honest yeah um how many of you you know uh faint at the sight of blood anyone uh, first hour, we had an anesthesiologist raise his hand that he faints at the side of the blood. I, I thought that would be a horrible surgery, right? Doctor be like, uh, can you feel anything? Yeah, this is painful. I mean, you know, you got to at least get that in your system, and there are times that we, we think we want life to just be calm and, and cool and collected, but we're watching our world increase its in, in, t- intensity, and we notice... That there are times that we just deal with upheaval. There is upheaval in countries. There is upheaval in the workplace. There's upheaval in industry. There's upheaval that happens at times in families. And how do you and I keep calm and carry on when we're faced with upheaval? At the top of your outline, you'll notice this statement. I want you to understand this because we're going to hit this a lot uh, during this series. But the statement is this, that with hope, You and I have the ability to rise above our circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. Now... Keep Calm and Carry On, where does that statement come from? We've seen it on mugs, on t-shirts, in all sorts of places like that. The the reality is uh, Keep Calm and Carry On came from England during World War II. They they were created as a poster in 1939 because they were worried that there might be an upheaval in their country, that invasion, Germany might make it across the pond and invade England. And so they created this poster to be able to show people, hey, just keep calm, keep doing what you need to do. Our world is in upheaval, but you keep doing what you can do, because that's so important for you to understand, to have your head about you, depending on where our culture is going and what's going to happen in our world. It was produced by England's Ministry of Information, right? Wouldn't that be where propaganda comes from, right? But uh, it's the Ministry of Information in 1939 and was intended to strengthen the morale of the people who were facing that potential invasion in their lives. And it was, it was only released in limited numbers. Uh, they produced quite a few, but it only actually got released out into the public just a little bit. And it was actually a set of three posters, and it was discovered again in 2000 in a secondhand bookstore in Northumberland, England. Hadn't been seen didn't get discovered. And then the second of the posters is this one that you'll see up on the screen. And it says this, keep calm and carry on. The second one is your courage, your cheerfulness, and your resolution will bring us victory. In other words, again, how you respond, how you act, it's contagious. And and when we stand together in these areas, we have a chance at victory, right? And then the third was this, freedom is in peril. Defend it. With all your might. What a great poster, right? This should be a Christian poster, don't you think? That our freedom is in peril. Defend it with all your might because you and I wake up and we're sometimes in upheaval from the moment we wake up. We wake up and there's that chatterbox that instantly starts going in your head and you're worried about the future and you're worried about what's going on and worried about upheaval and all these things are going on in your head already. And then you turn on the news and they bring up fears you hadn't thought of when you woke up, but they certainly filled in the blanks. And you begin to just start your day with this stress. And we're watching a world that's in upheaval, like the way countries work don't work anymore. And the way that terrorism happens is different than it happened before. And we look at all these things and we say our world is in upheaval. An invasion is coming, it's inevitable. And you know what this looks like. We don't always live every season of our life with upheaval but we certainly live some seasons of our life in upheaval, don't we? You get in a fight with your significant other, and you begin to compare notes about what you do and what they do. Maybe at the workplace, your business gets sold, and all of a sudden you're wondering, oh my goodness, is my job security at risk? And what does it look like? Or you get new management that comes in, and you have to adapt and adjust under new management. You understand what it's like then. Some of you have gone through a job loss. Some of you Uh, basically start factions at work. You're watching people just picking sides, choosing sides. Who do you align with? And you got to decide, wow, do I align with anybody? Do I go after value for the entire corporation? What do I do here? What happens if I don't align with certain people? Maybe my job security is at risk. Maybe your children are in trouble and your life's in upheaval. Maybe someone has died and your life is in upheaval. Maybe your parents are aging. And their life is upheaval, which now causes your life to be in upheaval. Maybe your own health declines. And sometimes the invasion is spiritual. It's on the inside. The attack of the enemy that brings shame and guilt. The attack on your peace. The, on, you know, the, the, the all-consuming thoughts that encompass you. And they begin to rob your joy. My joy factor was here, but man, these thoughts just keep coming back and it just saps my joy. Maybe you're under trial or you're under test or you're under temptation and you're failing. And you're just saying, listen, I'm being tempted and I give in every time to this temptation. I am failing. And so your identity, which was in Christ, is now being redirected to say, I'm a failure. I'm making mistakes and not just mistakes. I'm outright sinning. And all these things are happening you're saying, my identity is now not Christ. Maybe I could attach to somebody else to find strength because your life is in upheaval. Maybe there's a dryness in your heart that just saps your time in God's Word. Maybe for you it's that there's a dryness in your life and you haven't even gone to be in God's Word. That one place where you could be refreshed where his word speaks truth to your circumstances that you're in right now. There are times you and I stiff arm God because we're in pain. And he's saying, draw close to me. Invasion is inevitable. So how do we keep calm and carry on when dealing with upheaval? Upheaval. There are several dangers that happen, and let me just kind of outline what I think several and certainly not all-encompassing dangers happen when you and I are faced with upheaval. One, we might make allegiances with human leaders and play favorites. You know, in other words, I put my hope in a person. Remember, James was saying this. This was happening in the church. James was saying you're playing favoritism. You are giving favor to certain people that you think can have a benefit for you, but you're withholding favor from other people. And so now, what happens out in the world, you're just carrying it right into the church. You're just playing favorites. And sometimes we do that. When our life gets in upheaval, we want to cling. We want to cling to somebody or something to say, hey, can you help me walk through this season of instability? So we cling to a human at the expense of approaching God. A second danger is this, that you fail and you think your identity has changed. You think, I must not be of Christ because look at how I'm behaving. Instead of addressing the behavior and growing through community with other people and living out the identity that Christ has stamped on you, on your forehead. Another danger is this. I mistrust God's love and provision for me when structure or life goes through a shakeup. And you lose hope. All these things make us lose hope, right? You think your identity has changed, you start losing hope. Well, I had some hope that God would, you know, call me his own and I could be his, but looking at my behavior, maybe not, and you begin to lose hope for the future. You stop dreaming. You go through tough times and you begin to lose hope. And we need to realize that with hope, you have the ability to rise above your circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. And it doesn't take A lot of hope. Oftentimes, it's just a little hope. Do you realize that sometimes when you're dealing with a friend or a family member, you can't fix their whole problem and their whole thing, but if you could give them just a little hope, like 5%, it's amazing what doors open up from there. But what happens? We all come to a standstill when we think that we're stuck. How do you and I get hope? So that we can overcome our circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. Well, there was a church in the city of Corinth, and it was facing some upheaval. This church was founded by Paul as he was traveling around as a missionary, and he would go from one location to another. And when he would bring the gospel, the good news, he'd bring hope about Jesus to a culture that was hopeless. It looked a lot like our culture. There was a lot of sexual immorality in Corinth in those ancient days. There was a lot of just worship of false gods in those days. There was a lot of just, it was a commerce city, and it was a central place for commerce. So so the money was king, and how do we get money, and how do we buy security? And then there was just relationships all over the place, and posturing, and politics, and all these things that they were hoping would give hope, but all those things ended up not giving them hope. Paul shows up with the hope of new life in Christ. And people start to believe, and so he gathers these people together. He starts a church, he begins to work with them, and then he continues on a missionary journeys after he's discipled some who step up into leadership. But now Paul writes a letter back to this church because they're in the midst of some upheaval, and let's look and see what that upheaval is. If you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. He says, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Let me just pause right there for a minute. What if Paul were to write a letter to Sun Grove Church? What if he were to write a letter to us? Could you imagine if he said this? I couldn't address you as people who live by God's Spirit. Because you don't, you're just worldly. You live and do your life, and you kind of add God to it. But you're not being led by God's Spirit, right? He says it this way. He says, you're mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, well, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not mere human beings? If you're taking notes today, you'll realize that when people bring jealousy and quarreling into a church, it shows that they're making judgments like the world does. So here you and I are. You walk into a church and you begin getting, picking sides saying, well, I follow this preacher, I follow that TV evangelist, I follow this speaker, I follow this author, that author, and you walk into a church and you get around other people and you start choosing sides. And he says that's worldly because quarreling starts and arguments start. James reminded us in the previous book we looked at that we make those internal thoughts become ownership in our heart and now coming out of our mouth and our favoritism and other things that we show, we're proving that we have evil in our hearts that are working themselves out into our actions, how we treat one another. And we just do what the world does. We just basically take what we learned in the world, and we bring it in the church. What we learn in the workplace, and we bring it in the church. And he's saying, you're not to be like the world, that's worldly. You should be like those who are of Christ. And how we treat one another is different in church and some of you have experienced this. some of you are here today because you were in a situation in another church where a church fight happened or there was you got burned by a church or you felt like you really got judged by a church and if you did i am so sorry because that again is not what paul would do it's not what apollos would do they would point you to christ so paul plants a church apollos comes along as the regular preaching teaching guy in the church And the people were beginning to choose sides. You and I, when we are faced with upheaval, it's natural for us to want to do that. To cling to something to protect our security. What's at stake? Freedom. That's what's at stake. We're trying to trade our freedom in Christ to indebtedness to another person. So we're trying to say, I am free in you, Lord, and I am a co-worker, and I work with other people, and it's for your kingdom. And all of a sudden, upheaval happens, and we begin to go, who can I cling to? I don't want to be bonded to Christ. I want to be in servant to another person and put my allegiance in that human being. And we begin to attach to someone. Freedom is in peril. Defend it with all your might. Why does scripture tell you and I to capture our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ? Because freedom's at peril. That's why. We are to take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. We're to take our internal judgments captive and make them obedient to Christ. We're to take our allegiances that we want to cling to somebody else and make them obedient to Christ. What would it be like if you turned first to God when upheaval happened in your life? Think for a minute. Upheaval happens in your life. Who's the first person you call? Just think for a minute. Think yourself. Who do you call? Who do you talk to? If upheaval happens in your day and you get to work, who do you talk to first? The first person you're going to make a phone call to, a text, or talk to. What would it be like if you and I begin to talk to God First? I get it. Some of you are like, Dave, come on. When I talk to him, he doesn't talk back to me. Like, at least I get some feedback, right? Like, am I right? Am I right? Right, you know, right? You know, and so you, you want that. You want that immediate feedback. But sometimes we, we talk to God as if he's something else. And, and what if you and I, what if you and I prayed and talked to him first? What if you talked to God like you would talk to a best friend? What if you changed his name in your dialect so that you would understand who you're talking to a little better? What if you, you call them faithful and true? Like, God, you're the faithful one. You've always been faithful. Even when I've been unfaithful to you, you have always been faithful. Your scripture, your word says you're faithful. So I'm going to call you faithful and true. You're going to give me truth in all this upheaval I'm experiencing. What if you call them best friend? Because let me tell you, you and I have no better friend With ulterior agendas, Jesus' agendas were always pure, always best, always honorable, always right, always strengthening in your life, even when you and I go through upheaval. His motive is still good to bring about growth, and sometimes he'll let us hurt to grow. But it's pure. And what if you called him best friend? And you said, best friend, I'm in this upheaval right now, and I don't even know what to do, and Sometimes I just feel like running away from you, stiff-arming you, running back to old stuff, whatever, right? What if we begin to talk to God first? Wouldn't it be there that we would begin to find hope, overcome our circumstances, keep calm, and carry on? Well, how does discouragement happen? I'm reading a book. Right now, and and the book says there's three ways discouragement oftentimes happens, and it says this. You know, number one, stuff happens. Life happens, right? You have unexpected bills. You're like, I was not. I didn't see that coming. I didn't think that was going to break down. I didn't know that was going to you know break. I didn't see that bill coming at that time. I haven't planned for it. You might have health problems. I didn't see that coming. All of a sudden, health problems happen. You might have fears about your future, and just life. Life happens, right? And so all of a sudden, we get discouraged by that stuff. We're like, Oh, I thought. I was making headway, but I'm not as healthy as I thought I was. I thought I was making headway, but I'm not financially solvent as I thought I was. And then the second thing is people around you say negative things, or maybe they're just really negative people, or maybe they do harmful things to you. (laughs) And all of a sudden, you're like, it was bad enough that life happens, but now it gets heaped on by somebody else, and it's just as tearing down, and some of you might look at your friends and go, these friends are my friends, but they're not really friends to me. Why? Because I leave more discouraged after I meet with them than anything else. Man, you would get on a plane and travel across the country to meet with somebody who encourages you, wouldn't you? All of us would do that in a heartbeat if we could afford it meet with someone who just, we leave feeling, man, I'm so encouraged. And then the third source of discouragement, if we're honest, for me, it's myself. And I'm probably the strongest of all those, and maybe you are too. So what happens? Life happens, then there's people around us who happen, and then our own inner talk begins to discourage us. And we need to realize that with hope, you have the ability to rise above your circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. And my role as a leader is to point you to Jesus. If, if I point you to me, then we're all in trouble, right? Because I'm a human being just like you. I'm not Paul. I'm not even Apollos. We're human beings. But my role is to point you to Jesus because that's the source of hope you're taking notes today when christian leaders point people to the good shepherd they're taking the role of co-workers what does that mean that our job is to point you to the good shepherd there's one good je- good shepherd it's jesus christ and it is not me my job is to point you to the good shepherd our job is to worship the good shepherd it's not to worship what happens up here it's to, it's not to be distracted by the art of what happens up here it's to worship almighty god and we worship him Paul says it this way in verse 5. He says, what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord is assigned to each his task. It's so interesting to me that he doesn't say who. Right? It should be who is Paul and who is Apollos. But I think Paul does this on purpose. He says what? What's Paul? It's disarming. What's Apollos? We are only co-workers. We are servants of Almighty God. So why put favoritism and attachment to us, is what he's saying. Why choose sides and compete and compare and let envy and jealousy and quarreling exist among you? He goes on and says this in verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters, they have one purpose. And they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And sometimes you and I have been discouraged. You may have been a part of a church and that leader failed. You may have been part of an organization or a church and somebody was discipling you and they they relocated. They moved somewhere else and you're like, how is God ever going to fulfill that person's role in my life? And God's going, because I'm the good shepherd. Because I'm the one who raises up the right person at the right time in your life to take you to that next level. That person may have planted in your life. Somebody else is watering your life, but God's saying, I'm causing the growth. He is the good shepherd. What happens though, we live in a world where we see leaders all the time trying to draw the crowd, the people to themselves. But when leaders manipulate to draw people to themselves, they build a faulty foundation itself through envy and jealousy. It just reveals, what, what have you built? When you draw people to yourself, what are you building? Think of this, think of a divorce couple. And they're trying to each draw the kids to themselves, right? They're fighting over the kids, they're using the kids as pawns, they're in a conflict. They're each trying to draw the kids to themselves. What, what does it communicate to the kids? There's jealousy, there's envy, there's quarreling. You're using me to fight. You've now built a relationship with a child on a faulty foundation, Because they're not there to validate you, but you're to give them hope. Well, how do you give them hope when you're in a hopeless situation or you are in a situation that leads to arguing all the time? Could you imagine changing that dynamic in a way that impacts your kids? What about at work? Could you imagine changing how that operates and not giving in or not leaning on a faulty foundation But what happens? You and I get discouraged, and when we get discouraged, we choose human allegiances, and we act immaturely. We act like little kids. Corinth was doing that. This town was doing that, and the believers in this town were doing that, and it was making its way into their church. And they were quarreling. They were experiencing jealousy. They were trying to say which of these two leaders is going to show themselves to be elevated, to be you know, the best, and then we'll attach ourselves to that one, and, and that just means they just took their eyes off Jesus and put them on a person. Church leaders that network with other gospel-preaching church leaders are better together and become co-workers. And that's what Paul is saying. Listen, I came and planted. Now I'm off doing missionary work in other areas. Apollos is there, and he's teaching and preaching, and he's watering you, but it's ultimately God who caused the growth. We are are servants of God. We are co-workers. And the truth is, we are co-workers with other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in our region. That's our job as believers. Churches that don't, on the other hand, churches that don't network, choose to limit their planting and effectiveness out of pride or insecurity. Now let me tell you, like, there will be churches that choose not to network with other churches, and they will do good work. They will. But it's going to be like a little pinprick because it's not the whole effort of the movement of the body of Christ in an area or in a region. But will they do some good? Sure they will. But in a sense, they could unleash it. But by being just to themselves, they limit their effectiveness. That's not what God has called us to be. And that's not what Paul is calling his church. He's not saying, come back to me, I'm Paul. He's saying, follow the good shepherd. Satan knew that an isolated church would be an ineffective church. And so he has tried for thousands of years to cause the church to become a denomination and be more known for what they're against than what they're for. To be a church who, who sucks out hope from a culture instead of a church that gives hope to the hopeless in a culture. Jesus, on the other hand, prayed for unity. The, almost the entire chapter of John 17. Jesus, he is praying and he is praying for unity in his church. Well, how do we do that? How do we get unity where over years there's been division or problems or quarreling? Well, you need to understand if you're taking notes today that celebration breaks envy and jealousy. Celebration breaks envy and jealousy. We've got three boys and when they were little, they would have a birthday. And their birthdays, of course, were all at different times. But have you ever been at a party where... The birthday kid opens a present and they see the present. They're all delighted. And the sibling comes from the side, snags it, grabs it like it's their own and walks away. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then the parents are like screaming like, oh, no, no, uh, awkward. You know, let's, let's share. And the kid's fussing and crying. You're dragging them with the toy, you know, over back to the birthday kid. And they're crying because their toy just got stolen. And, you know, how do you do this? You see it there. That happens, right? The one child couldn't celebrate the other child. They were like, no, you can't have something good happen to you. It's got to only happen with me. And the church in Corinth was acting that way. And celebration is the only thing that will break it. So Heather and I, we were like, how do we teach our kids? Because we our kids were really, really little. They weren't like totally into all that stuff yet, but it was coming. And we were like, how do we try to get ahead of it? And we just realized celebration breaks envy and jealousy. So what did we do? We began to tell our kids, okay. It's, you know, Zachary's birthday today, and he's going to get some presents. But we want to celebrate him because it's his birthday. And guess what? Your day will come, too. Your turn will come, too. And there would be times when one of the boys would come over, like, towards Zachary. No, no, no. We're celebrating Zachary today. Your turn will come, too. Your day will come, too, right? Well, they grew up then realizing, oh, I'm freed up to celebrate good somewhere else because my day will come too. And as a group, my boys are like, they're, they're, they're like best friends right now. It's wonderful to see. One of the reasons is because they're following the good shepherd and he's been causing the growth. But the other reason is because along the way they learn to celebrate one another. Let me tell you, some of us are still acting like five-year-olds. We can't celebrate somebody else getting a promotion at work. We can't celebrate something good happening to somebody else. We are envious and jealous about a person's look or their lifestyle or the good things that happen in their lives. And that's not the church. That's not how God has called us. Why? Freedom is at stake. It's in peril. And when you and I get envious and jealous, we are just transferring our freedom away. We're just handing it away. Here you go, take it. Freedom is at stake. It's at peril. What do we need to do Like this poster, your courage, your cheerfulness, your resolution will bring us victory. One of the reasons that worship is so critical, when you and I come and we sing and we're lifting up the name of Jesus and we're singing to him, one of the reasons it's so important for you and I to come and celebrate Jesus on a Sunday is we need a weekly routine in our life where we celebrate him. You know why? Our culture teaches us all week long to celebrate us. And then when we don't get what we want, we fight and quarrel sometimes with God because we didn't get what we wanted. But when you and I come on a Sunday and we come together as the church and we begin to sing and worship and praise Almighty God, guess what happens in my heart? I begin to celebrate Him. And in doing so, I realize I start to become more free. That's why it's not good enough just to stand and watch What's going on? You might have a horrible voice and say, please, I don't even want to sing in the shower or you know, even in my own car driving alone. But just there's, again, I wanted to say, you need to begin to worship God and sing praises to him because it begins to help us celebrate Christ. And it breaks envy and jealousy in you and in me. A unified church is an amazing thing. When we had the shooting at Columbine High School in Colorado, I lived there for 10 years and was a youth pastor in the area. And I was leading the network of youth pastors. And we all knew each other and we loved it because we would get together a couple of times a month, had a great time. And then about a year and a half before the shooting tragedy happened at Columbine High School, our senior pastors started getting together. And they started getting to know each other. And we loved it because we were like, we've been meeting for like eight years. And we're like, you know, finally our bosses, you know, those senior pastors You know, boy, they finally got to know each other out there. You know, we were like, you know, we thought we were all that because we were like getting networked and unified. But they were still stuck in their denominationalism and their their prejudices. and, And we began to watch the Spirit of God move in the hearts of pastors and bring them together over a prayer meeting. They weren't even at this point doing anything yet. And we began to see their hearts warm to one another. And they began to get at this point where they were like loving each other and trusting. And why? Celebration begin to break down territorialism among the church. And praise be to God that he would do that. It was his movement that did that because when the shooting happened at Columbine, the church was able to respond as the church in a unified way to a community that was so hurting. And there were people who, when that shooting happened at Columbine, across the world it brought up loss for people who'd experienced loss in almost any way even years before. One of my coworkers, his son, years before, 17 years before, went into a park with a shotgun. and He committed suicide. And when the shooting happened at Columbine, it brought that old wound up fresh for him, just like it did for so many people across the country. When young people shoot young people, it just brought that up. But that's where hope can begin. The church responded as a church. I'll be honest with you. I watched the impossible happen. I watched the state of Colorado put on a worship service. When they did a memorial, it was Christian singer singing. It was Franklin Graham, a Christian preacher, preaching. I watched my state at the capitol put on a worship service. Could you imagine that here in Sacramento? <clears throat> Let me not prop up Colorado. They're the first to legalize abortion. They're the first to legalize, well, among the first to legalize pot. So I'm not propping them up. I'm just saying the impossible happened. Of all places, could you imagine if the church acted like the church, that when tragedy would strike, that our culture would be changed, that our state would put on a worship service up at the Capitol? But that's what happened. It came through loss, but it bred new life. Here in Elk Grove, we've got what we call the church at Elk Grove. It's not like Pastors Network or anything. We call it the church at Elk Grove. Why? Because we're the church who just happens to exist in Elk Grove. Just like there's a church at Corinth, we're the church at Elk Grove. And we get together about four times a year, and at that experience, we basically have this opportunity to we have a speaker come in and we love it and we just it, we just get to know each other it breaks down territorialism we had the mayor come in kind of share with us here's the state of Elk Grove we say how can we respond to the needs of our city and what can we do to just come alongside you as the church not as a bunch of little teeny church just trying to do their own little pinprick but how do we be the sword of the word of God and bring hope to the hopeless and it breaks down territorialism. We're doing a season of service. As the Church of Elk Grove, there's a season of service all across Sacramento. There's a Sacramento Pastors Network that has over 400 pastors in it. It's unbelievable. They gather about six times a year. We go down to it. It's phenomenal that all these denominations, think they're just breaking down. There's a movement of the Spirit of God in the Sacramento region of all places God is working in our region right now, and we're going to do a season of service that has already started, and then the churches in Elk Grove, we're taking the weekend of April 25th, 26th, to meet the needs in Elk Grove as the church of Elk Grove. Why? Because we're co-workers, because we're part of his kingdom, and we're lifting up the name of Jesus. We celebrate the movement of God. We break down the barriers. Francis Chan uh, just spoke at the Martin Luther King service that, that happened just a few weeks ago, and he said, listen, there's something just so radical happening here in Sacramento. When he goes and talks about what's happening here in Sacramento in the region to other places like in Texas and other places, they're blown away. They're blown away like, well, seriously? Like you lay down those barriers and you just respond together as a church? They're like, how can we do that in our area? One of the leaders of that has been the church at Grove. I mean, the city pastors can hardly even fathom that about three years ago, we did two different series among all our churches. We wrote the messages together and we preached them in all our churches. One was called City Hope, one was called Family Hope. Some of you put out lawn signs. You remember what that was like. The church at Oak Grove was doing that together. About seven of us pastors went away during the week and went on a retreat, why? Because we just brought in a speaker who helps us understand some of the weight of the ministry and the challenges that we face and we just walk together as brothers who love one another. That's unheard of in so many parts of the country. Let me ask, where's jealousy perking up in your heart? You just find you cannot celebrate. You're having trouble celebrating there. What upheaval's going on in your life right now that's making you stiff-arm God? You know, sometimes our self-talk has been so strong that we need to pray with somebody else. And in just a little bit of time, you'll have opportunity to pray out loud with another person just to help break that stuff that goes on in our heads. But can you imagine what hope is birthed when divorced parents celebrate the other parent instead of pulling the kids and resorting to jealous quarreling. Can you imagine what hope is birthed when couples stop keeping score about what well, here's what I bring to the table and here's what you you did and here's what you didn't do. And what if you begin to celebrate the good that the other person did as small as you might think it might be? What could happen in your relationship? What could happen? What kind of hope could be birthed when you stop choosing sides in the workplace and you start celebrating whatever brings value to the company? Whatever brings value to your culture and to the corporation. And stop the fighting and the quarreling and the bitterness and the envy. And you start saying, I'll celebrate. I'm not choosing sides. I'm, I'm, I'm outside of that game because I'm part of the body of Christ. With hope, you have the ability to rise above your circumstances, to keep calm and carry on. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.